production in Colorado as I was. The first release was such a spectacle. We had been working towards this for three years. The act of opening the door and the lynx takes a tentative step out, looks around, and then starts to trot off. It was magical to think, wow, I had been part of this, and now that beautiful critter is back on the landscape. The Independent Audit Committee was established by charter and receives audit reports and other information from the Denver Audit Office. The committee strives to bring greater clarity, transparency, and accountability to Denver's city government and its residents. It is also responsible for commissioning an annual audit of the city's comprehensive annual financial report. This committee is chaired by Auditor Timothy M. O'Brien. Good morning, and welcome to the November 2021 meeting of the Independent Audit Committee. Uh, the first item on our agenda is to take the roll, and Edie, would you please take the roll for us? Yes, sure. Uh, Jack Blumenthal? Here. Lorraine Knapp? Here. Leslie Mitchell? Here. Charles Strive? Here. Edward Schultz? Tim O'Brien. Here. Uh, we do have a quorum, so thank you. Uh, next item is the minutes from the October meeting. Uh, the minutes are before you. Any questions, comments, edits to the minutes from the October meeting? If not, a motion to approve would be in order. I so move. Second. Thank you. All in favor? Aye. 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 Any opposed? Thank you, the minutes are approved. Uh, the first uh, audit briefing we have on the agenda is a re expense report, expense approval analysis uh, conducted by our data analytics team. Uh, Katja, are you here? Would you like to make any introductory remarks about this audit? Yeah, I can do that. So good morning, Auditor Brian, members of the committee. My name is Katya Freeman, the audit director on the engagement. And it was actually an effort of the data analytics team and performance auditors. So we're pretty proud that we actually were able to join forces and do a full audit. And this audit looked at whether proper controls are in place when employees are seeking to get reimbursed for their expenses. And while the audit found no evidence of fraud, having strong controls in place, such as having separate material and cost center approval for reimbursements, helps an organization to be transparent and accountable with how taxpayer dollars are spent. The team also found evidence that manager level approvers need a little more guidance from the Department of Finance to understand their specific role in the expense reimbursement process. And Sam will now introduce his team and they will fill you in on all the details. Thank you, Katya. Good morning, my name is Sam Gallagher and I'm the audit analytics manager and led this expense report process audit. I'm joined by the team, which consists of William, William Morales, our senior analytics auditor, Ron Keller, our senior auditor, and Daniel Summers, our associate auditor. 
This audit was completed under the direction of Kachi Freeman. Before we begin with our findings, I'd like to thank controller Bill Rydell and his team for their cooperation throughout the audit. Their prompt return of document and data requests and participation in interviews are part of this audit's success and timely completion. I'll pause here to give controller Rydell any introductions or comments. Thank you, Sam. Uh, good morning, audit committee. Good morning, everyone. Uh, as Sam mentioned, I'm Bill Rydell, I'm the controller. Um, the team that was uh, working with the auditor's office on this audit and, and the accounts payable group, our AP manager has left the state. We've since backfilled that position. So you guys get just me this morning. Uh, before we get started, I do want to thank the audit team for being great to work with and, and the work you've done on this. Thank you all. Thank you. The, the objective of this audit was to examine the city's process for approving expense reports and to identify why the approval process allows for poorly documented and sometimes miscategorized expenses to pass through. The miscategor miscategorization issue was initially identified by the, by the audit analytics team. As part of our continuous audit process, we connect to data systems and create analytics to find risks. Those risks are reported internally. If the risks are high enough, we begin a full audit, which is uh, where this audit uh, initiated from. With that, the scope of this audit covered detailed testing of expense reports for non-travel expenses approved from January 2018 through December of 2020. We also performed additional testing of expense reports for non-travel expense, expenses approved from June 2018 through July 2021 based on some of the issues that we found. I also would like to emphasize we did not include an assessment of the, appropriate of the appropriateness of the expenses. Rather, did those that were approved have the appropriate documentation and were categorized correctly? Uh, with that, I'll pass now the report back to Ron Keller, and he can take us through our background. Well, thank you, Sam. This audit work was initially part of the analytics team risk assessment of city expense reimbursements. It builds on knowledge from the October 2020 travel expenses audit, which examined, examined travel expense reports. This audit focused on non-travel expenses. However, the findings relate to the overall expense report, approval process, and its internal controls. Beginning on page one of the report, the city reimburses employees for out-of-pocket expenses through Workday, the city's financial system of record. The report is then routed for approval in a predefined workday business process with final approval by the controller's office. The controller's office also manages the expense report process. An expense report should include information to fully describe the expenses, the benefit to the city, and include any itemized receipts and be recorded in the appropriate expense category. On page two of the report and next slide, the controller's office helps ensure the financial integrity of the city's accounting records. The office is responsible for payroll, accounts payable, general accounting, and financial reporting. Along with city agencies, the controller's office also establishes and maintains the city's fiscal accountability rules to guide the reporting, tracking, and approval of all expenditures. This includes those reimbursed through the workday expense report process. The rules set parameters to help management and employees in conducting financial activities. On page three of the report and next slide, 
City employees can acquire and pay for goods and services in different ways, such as purchase orders, city-issued purchase and travel cards, or petty cash. Purchase orders are the preferred method when terms and conditions are required or when the city has established arrangements with vendors. Purchase and travel cards are city-issued credit cards with built-in spending limits and assigned only to some employees. Lastly, petty cash is handled by the agency when other purchasing options are not practical or when the purchase is nominal, such as for $125 or less. When city employees use their own money to pay for expenses, they can request reimbursement. The city reimburses these expenses primarily using expense reports in Workday and distinguishes between travel and non-travel expenses. Examples of non-travel expenses include office supplies or costs related to official functions, which are authorized activities held for business purposes, such as staff recognition and some meetings. Now, either the employee or designated agency staff can initiate an expense report and workday. All itemized receipts related to the reimbursable expenses must also be attached to the expense report. On page three of the report and next slide, there are fiscal accountability rules that apply to all city expenditures. These rules outline the requirements for approving expenses and the types of expenses that can be made. In general, the rules require that all financial transactions must be authorized by a spending authority or designate to ensure that all transactions are reasonable and necessary. Financial responsibilities should be divided so that no one person has control over the entire process. For example, the same employee should not both submit a reimbursement request and then approve it. And supporting documentation should be submitted to substantiate the expenditures. As noted before, the city also has rules on the use of procurement methods, such as purchase orders and purchase cards. These rules provide that all purchases must have a purchase order with some exceptions, such as emergency pur purchases or those made with a purchase card. These rules do not mention expense reports and there is no city guidance such as dollar amount limits. Again, the general guidance is that expenses must be reasonable and necessary. To put these rules into practice, the controller's office creates workflow assignments for expense report approvals in Workday. It also publishes job A's that highlight the required elements of an expense report. On page eight of the report and next slide, the cities use the process and workday for employees to track, upload, and then submit expense reports to help ensure compliance with spending rules. Typically, expense reports require three levels of approval by a manager, by the cost center approver for the work unit to which the expenses will be charged, and by an accounts payable specialist in the controller's office. The steps in this process include first, creating the expense report. This is done either by the employee or agency staff. As mentioned, there are workday job aids that provide detailed instructions on how to enter the data and supporting documentation. Next, if agency staff create the expense report, then the employee is responsible for reviewing its accuracy and completeness 
before submitting it for approval. Once submitted, Workday notifies the first approver, which is the manager. The manager, typically the employee's direct supervisor, will review and approve the expense report. Once approved, the expense report is then routed to the cost center approver. The cost center approver, in turn, approves the expenditures of funds for the agency. It is then routed to accounts payable in the controller's office. Lastly, a data entry specialist generally provides final approval. The accounts payable manager is the final approver for expense reports of $3,000 or more. Additional approvers in this chain can be added if necessary. For example, if the spending authority or uh, another approver is not available, then they may temporarily delegate approval authority to another manager. Now this concludes the background. Are there any questions or comments? Any questions not, for the committee? Um, Why don't we continue, Ron? Okay. Uh, Daniel will now discuss the first finding. Thank you. Thank you, Ron, and good morning, everyone. Beginning on page seven of the report, our first finding is titled, A Poorly Defined and Monitored Expense Report Process Leads the City at Risk for Inappropriate and Misclassified Spending. Slide, please. Our first sub-finding begins on page eight and is titled, Many Expense Reports Were Approved Despite Being Incomplete and Sometimes Inaccurate. Slide, please. Figure three shows how we selected our sample of expense reports to test. Most line items were for travel-related expenses, while the two most common non-travel expense categories were for official functions and office supplies. We tested the approval process for expense reports with official function and office-applied line items from 2018 to 2020. We excluded travel expense line items because travel expense reports were audited earlier this year. However, the approval process for non-travel and travel-related expense line items are the same. Therefore, our findings relate to all expense report types. Our testing evaluated the approval process of expense reports, not whether the purchases were suitable or allowable. Slide, please. We examined each report for the required elements, including whether it provided an explanation of the expense, whether the documentation supporting the transaction was attached, and how the expense was categorized. We found many of these approved expense reports had issues as summarized in figure four on page 10. Specifically, 12% of the 170 expense reports in our sample failed the documentation requirements. One of the city's fiscal accountability rules requires supporting documentation for all financial transactions to substantiate the expense. Some expense reports had only non-itemized credit card receipts or they had missing amounts from itemized receipts. 39% of the expense report's memo lines did not describe how the expenses benefited the city, and 30% did not describe the purpose of the expense. City rules require that the memo line of an expense report describes the purpose of the expense and its benefit to the city. However, we identified many generic memo lines, such as employee reimbursement. And 26% of the reports in our sample were not placed in the most appropriate spend category. When filling out an expense report, employees place each expense into an expense category that describes the general type of expense. Agencies and the city's budget and management office use these categories when analyzing budgets and for reporting expenses to the public. These three types of failures indicate that the city's expense report approval process is not working as it should. 
slide, please. The insufficient expense report approval process may allow for city officials and staff to be reimbursed for potentially questionable purchases. However, our audit work did not evaluate whether the purchases were appropriate or allowable. Rather, our work identified items that were being purchased outside of the normal procurement processes. For example, additional audit work revealed that about $19,000 of home office equipment and information technology assets were purchased by city employees and officials who were later reimbursed through the expense report process. Many of these purchases lacked supporting documentation to describe the nature of the expense or whether they aligned with city rules. Two purchases we identified were for MacBook laptops. At the time of this audit, one laptop was not registered on the city's information technology asset list. This means that the computer, which may be linked to city networks, is an unknown asset and therefore may not have the needed level of security, which increases the city's cybersecurity risk. Slide, please. Notes provided throughout the approval process and workday identified some of these expenses as non-standard purchases. The notes showed that staff in the accounts payable division questioned the appropriateness of these expenses. Although these purchases were ultimately approved, they highlight two risks. First, that the approver closest to the purchase did not raise questions and did not, requ did not request essential documentation. The manager approver may not have requested this information because they possibly use information outside of workday, such as familiarity with the transaction or a conversation with the employee purchaser to make their determination for approval. However, by not including additional information or documentation in workday, future approvers cannot arrive at the same determination. And second, when the expense report process is used in unintended ways, city equipment is potentially not tracked or recorded as required. Executive Order 18 describes the role of technology services for tracking technology assets. It is crucial that all technology asset purchases comply with city rules, including executive orders. Further, acquiring technology assets without the review and approval of technology services increases the city's vulnerability to threats. It is crucial to ensure that equipment that is connected to the city's network has the approved and appropriate protections installed and maintained to decrease the risk of vulnerabilities, including phishing attacks and viruses. The ineffective approval process leaves the city at risk for inappropriate spending and a lack of transparency in how city agencies use taxpayer funds. Our audit work therefore investigated why the approval process allowed expense reports that contain issues to be approved. Through our testing of sampled expense reports, additional review of high-risk expenses, our interviews with Department of Finance staff, and a survey we conducted with expense report approvers, we found that the approval process failed to catch these issues for three reasons. First, there is a lack of defined roles or responsibilities for the staff who approve expense reports. Second, there is a lack of standardized training for those employees. And third, that the employees use information that is outside of workday when reviewing an expense report. Each of our three causes has its own recommendation, so I'll present those as we describe them. Slide, please. Our first cause is that there is a lack of defined roles or responsibilities for approvers. The U.S. Government Accountability Office emphasizes the significance of determining key roles, assigning responsibilities to achieve objectives, and developing and maintaining documentation of an organization's internal control structure 
which is the system of policies, procedures, techniques, and mechanisms that help achieve an organization's objectives and address identified risks. The controller's office is responsible for establishing and maintaining the expense report approval process, including designating the different approval roles. The controller's office also provides job aids on expense reports and assists city agencies when they have issues completing or approving expense reports. However, we found the controller's office does not have policies or procedures that define the roles and responsibilities for employees who approve expense reports. The city's fiscal accountability rules and associated job aids provide general guidance on what is expected in an expense report. However, employees assigned as an approver do not have a document that clearly describes the purpose or responsibilities of their specific level of approval. Slide, please. We surveyed 49 first level manager approvers who reviewed the 170 expense reports in our sample to understand their interpretation of their perceived responsibilities for their level of approval. Slide, please. Our survey included questions to understand which elements of an expense report they review as part of their role, what they believe they are responsible for reviewing, and how often they felt they were doing more than the role required. The responses we received showed approvers do not have a uniform understanding of the different approver roles or their own responsibilities as a first level approver. Slide, please. For example, we asked approvers to identify which elements of an expense report they are responsible for reviewing. As seen here in figure six on page 13 of the report, manager approvers were inconsistent in their understanding of the expense report items they are responsible for reviewing. Slide, please. To address the lack of a uniform understanding for different approval roles and their associated responsibilities, we make recommendation 1.1, which states, the Department of Finance should define and document the responsibilities for each level of approver for expense reports, manager, cost center approver, grants manager, and accounts payable data entry specialist. These definitions should address, but not be limited to, definitions for each approver role that communicates the authority of each role, the responsibility of each approver role with clear links to fiscal accountability rules, career service rules, related procedures, and job aids and the documentation associated with expense reports that each role is responsible for checking and approving. Finance has agreed to this recommendation and stated March 31st, 2022 as the date of implementation. I'll now open the floor to finance for any questions or comments. Uh, Bill, do you care to add anything to your response? No, I would you know, just say that, that uh, we agreed with the recommendation um, you know, while the, the findings were concerning to us, I think uh, it was good to see that nothing inappropriate was found. And that to keep in mind that there are these levels of approval within expense reports where you've got the employee reviewing it, you've got their supervisor reviewing it, and you've got the cost center reviewing it. And so um, the, the supervisor approval and cost center approval are, you know, those, those are pretty common, common types of approvals for other transactions and processes across the city. Uh, clearly though, we need to do some follow-up training and, and give guidance on what those different approval roles should be looking for. Thank you. Um, any questions from the committee? I, I would mention, Bill, that we did not really look at the appropriateness of any of the expenditures. We really looked at the process itself, so. Uh, Daniel, you wanna continue? Sure, thank you. 
Uh, slide, please. Another cause for the failure to be found in the approval process is that the controller's office does not provide standard training for expense report approvers. Controller's office staff told us they provide only ad hoc training to approvers when employees reach out for clarification or assistance. However, staff were unable to provide notes describing the type of training that was provided or records showing how many approvers had received ad hoc training. The absence of any standard training does not align with the principles from the U.S. Government Accountability Office, which says training is crucial to develop competency and enforce standards of conduct. Although ad hoc training has historically been provided by the controller's office for individuals who reach out, formal training should be provided for each of the approval roles to explain what is expected from approvers. We asked the expense report approvers where they receive training on how to review an expense report, and only 19% of respondents said they received any formal training. Beyond formal training, our survey revealed the most common forms of training that approvers receive are informal and self-directed. 17% said they received no training at all. Slide, please. Separate from training, responses to our survey also showed that approvers need a resource to teach them about the role. For example, as shown here in figure seven on page 14 of the report, only 15% of respondents said they have not had a question on how to review an expense report. When asked which resource approvers turn to when they have a question, the most common answer was their coworkers or manager, followed by Department of Finance staff, then the city's fiscal accountability rules, and lastly, job aids. This suggests most respondents not only have questions about the approval process, but they rely on other city employees or Department of Finance staff more than they rely on documented sources such as job aids or fiscal rules when they need help. After this audit began, members of the accounts payable service team began drafting guidance for expense report approvers. When we received a draft during the audit, the guidance was still under review. Slide, please. We also found limitations in how useful the city's fiscal accountability rules are with respect to an approver's responsibilities. Although the fiscal accountability rules describe the levels of documentation required for all financial transactions, they do not describe procedures around any of the approval processes. As seen in figure eight on page 15 of the report, our survey found that the fiscal rules are the most popular resource that approvers consult to ensure the review of an expense report is complete. However, approvers do not review the rules frequently or at all. 50% of respondents said they reviewed the expense-related fiscal rules over a year ago, and 18% said they have never reviewed the rules. We also analyzed the records that show how often city employees access expense report job aids. The Department of Finance provides expense report job aids on the city's internet site and in the Workday Learning platform. Our analysis shows that job aids are not a primary source of information for approvers, which aligns with the survey responses. Records show that only 86 unique employees access the job aids through the intranet site or workday between 2018 and 2020. The lack of standardized training and the lack of resources to answer questions about approval roles creates inconsistencies in how expense reports are approved and diminishes how well-equipped approvers are to fulfill their duties. Slide, please. To remedy these shortcomings, we make recommendation 1.2, which states, the Department of Finance should develop, implement, and communicate standardized training, guides, 
and or a set of procedures for approvers so they fully understand the expense report process and their roles and responsibilities as an approver. The training guides and or procedures should answer any commonly asked questions. Finance has agreed to this recommendation and stated March 31st, 2022 as the date of implementation. I'll now open the floor for any questions or comments. Um, any additional comments from the controller? Uh, no, I would just say, you know, related to the last uh, finding and recommendation as well, I think this demonstrates that we need to do some uh, additional training. Uh, we really rely on the agency personnel and those cost center approvers and supervisors to be looking at these expense reports to ensure that they're in compliance with fiscal rules, reasonable, appropriate, all, all of those things. Um, you know, it's not, these aren't overly difficult concepts, but uh, clearly we need to do some more some more training in these areas. Thank you. Uh, questions or comments from the audit committee? Well, let's continue. All right, thank you. Uh, slide, please. The third cause we identified for issues in the approval process is that employees use information that is outside of workday when reviewing an expense report. We asked approvers about their agency's use of supplemental forms. Supplemental forms are optional documents that can assist an employee to ensure that all required documents are included and that all required descriptions are stated for an expense report, such as the purpose of the expense, how it benefits the city, as well as the amount requested for reimbursement. 73% of respondents said their agency uses a supplemental form for official functions, and 24% said their agency uses a supplemental form for office supplies. The supplemental form for an official function was specifically made for that type of expense, while the supplemental form for office supplies varied from petty cash request forms to generic requests for reimbursement. Our analysis of sampled expense reports showed that supplemental forms were used more often with official functions than with office supplies. We found that official functions failed the test for documentation less often than office supply expenses. A breakdown of our testing shows that office supplies lacked adequate documentation and were miscategorized at much higher rates than official functions. When employees use the supplemental forms and include them as part of the expense report documentation, it adds context to the nature of the expense that is often missing when these documents are not included. Based on these risks identified by our work, we make recommendations 1.3 and 1.4. I'll open the floor to finance for questions and comments after reading both recommendations. Recommendation 1.3 states, as part of implementing recommendation 1.2, the Department of Finance should include in its standardized training guides and or set of procedures for approvers information about how city executive orders, fiscal accountability rules, and career service rules that pertain to expenses and reimbursement. The department should emphasize to city agencies the importance of these regulations and promote the need for consistent compliance. Finance has agreed to this recommendation and stated March 31st, 2022 is the date of implementation. Slide, please. And recommendation 1.4 states the Department of Finance should update its policies and procedures for expense reports to include a description of how city employees and expense report approvers should document in the city's system of record workday any clarifying conversations or agency level forms that further describe the nature and purpose of an expense. 
Finance has agreed to this recommendation and stated March 31st, 2022 as the date of implementation. I'll now open the floor for any questions or comments. Uh, Bill, any additional comments from the controller's office? No comments. We agreed with these recommendations. I think they're pretty, pretty closely related as they are to the, the previous recommendations as well. So part of training and procedures that would uh, cover these things to really emphasize that folks should be looking for compliance with uh, fiscal accountability rules. Is March 31st a reasonable day to get all this done? I think it is. I mean, it's a, it's an aggressive date, but uh, we we put that there, and we really want to shoot for that. We want to make sure that any gaps in uh, in the training or guidance are are closed as as soon as practical. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, questions, comments from the committee. I have a question or a clarification. Yep. Go right ahead. If the um, I, I just wanted to clarify that the supplemental forms that we that were just discussed, the official function form and that sort of thing. Those are all electronic forms that can be attached to the expense report through the work through workday and then uh, part of the, the workflow, right? Those are not, so uh, official function form is required, but agencies keep those on file. I mean, it, it's electronic in that it's a Excel spreadsheet or something. We don't require those forms to be submitted with the expense reports. I mean, it's our hope that the backup documentation and any notes to the expense report would cover that. Uh, as far as the office supplies, we don't have any standard form or official guidance. And, and honestly, we'd, we'd rather they not use an additional form. We're trying to get agencies to not use their own internal forms on these kind of things. That way we make sure that the, we provide them within the system a place to, to provide that information. Uh, okay. so only the official function form is actually a, a, a form that we put out. Okay, great. Well, having been in a process where the sometimes the, um, the documentation of a transaction takes more effort than, than one might think it worth, um, I just wanted to have some thought put a, to uh, what the process, the newly designing processes were going to be so that people, it's not too cumbersome for people. That's an excellent point. That's something we really are mindful of. Um, generally, these are smaller dollar uh, purchases. Mm -hmm. We want to make, it's still city money. We want to make sure we've got good control yes. in place. Yes. If the process becomes, like you're saying, overly cumbersome, then, then we're spending more on the process than we are on whatever it is that we're so again, we really want to try to leverage the system to have as much information as possible going into their kind of one-stop shop, put it in, then we have visibility for everybody else along the approval process. Thanks. And I'd like to emphasize, we weren't saying that they should use them, but we found that they are, and if they are using them, they should be part of the documentation. Thank you, Sam. Uh, other questions or comments? Shall we continue? Yes. Sure, I'll uh, now hand it off to Dr. Gallagher to discuss our next sub-finding. All right, thank you, Daniel. Sub-finding two starts on page 23 of the report. We found the expense report approval process for the city council president okay. does not align with- Yeah, have a good time. I'm sorry I can't participate. Hey, Jack, here, we can hear you if you can mute, thanks. Uh, do not align with fiscal rules uh, that require separation of duties. 
In our review of the approval routing, routings of a random sample of expense reports, we identified those expense reports paid to the city council president to be routed to the city council president for manager level approval. The audit team then examined other routings for other spending authorities across the city, including the mayor. In all additional cases examined by the audit team, we found that each level of approval was completed by someone other than the payee, which aligns with city fiscal rules. We spoke with the Department of Finance about the expense report routing and workday, the system which manages the automatic workflows. Typically, expense reports are routed to the individual's direct supervisor for the manager approval step. However, when the individual is the spending authority, the manager approval is left unassigned. In these cases, they are manually assigned to an alternate person and often someone outside of the agency. We confirmed the scenario in our review of all other expending authorities expense reports. For city council members, all of them who also do not have direct supervisors, the expense report is routed to the city council's spending authority, which is the city council president for the manager approval step. It appears that this logic was also applied to the city council president's expense reports, which created the self-approval at the manager approval step. To show the effect of the current approval routing for the city council president, auditors examined all expenses paid to city council members within the scope of the audit, which had self-approval at the manager level of approval, excuse me. As shown in figure nine on page 24 of the report, in total, city council members expensed over $62,000, of which nearly $7,000 was self-approved by the city council president in position between 2018 and 2020. While there are other levels of approval for expense reports, the manager level approval is considered the most in-depth approval step. Allowing the payee of an expense report to provide their own manager level approval erodes the separation of duties required by city rules. The Government Accountability Office notes that separation of duties helps address the risk of a manager circumventing existing controls, which increases the risk of fraud. Therefore, to improve the separation of duties expense report approvals, we give recommendation 1.5 on page 25 of the report, which states the Department of Finance should identify the workflows of expense report approval processes which do not align with fiscal accountability rule 2.4 related to separation of duties. For the identified workflows, the Department of Finance should develop a tailored workday process to align with, with fiscal rules related to separation of duties and the department should verify that the process is implemented. The agency has agreed with this recommendation and provided an implementation, implementation date of December 31st, 2021. I'll now pause here uh, for any comments. Uh, any more comments from the controller? Yeah, so on, on this particular uh, finding, first of all, I wanna thank the audit team. Uh, this is something we weren't aware of. So we, we appreciate you all identifying this issue. Um, and just to give a little more background, it, you know, the reason this was happening, it's nothing that city council did or the city president asked for. Uh, it was really based on an, an anomaly in the workflow that we had structured. So all the workflows like we've talked about uh, are based on reporting structures within Workday. And so there's a really unique setup for city council in that every city council member reports up to the city council president in Workday, including the council member who's the president. So there's 13, if you imagine an org chart with 
13 council members all reporting up. So what happens when the city council president has an expense report, the system, first of all, every person approves their own expense report. And so when the city council president approved their own expense report, the system, because it shows them as their own supervisor, applied the supervisor approval on there. So that was, that was really the issue. So an important thing to keep in mind is for all of those expense reports, and Sam had mentioned this, we had at least two other people with eyes on there. So there was always a cost center approver uh, from city council looking at those and approving those. And then they all went through the accounts payable team uh, in the controller's office. So, um, you know, while, while that anomaly provided uh, and, or allowed for an approval process that wasn't ideal, it's important to keep in mind there were other folks looking at those for other elected officials, because elected officials don't have a supervisor, obviously. So for other elected officials, that manager approval, it sort of bounces out. And so we have to reassign it for someone else to, to give that approval. Um, one thing mentioned in the audit was that the manager approval is the most important approval. I would, I would add some more context in that. I don't think any one approver in the process is more important than another. I know a survey was conducted, but um, you know, looking at what the cost center approver does, they're looking at the reasonableness of the transaction. Is it appropriate? Is it coded the right way? And again, all of these had that cost center approver on there. The other thing I would add is that this is always, well, the recommendation said we should come up with an alternate uh, workflow process. So we actually found a, a quicker way to make the fix and it's already been implemented. So right now there's a control in the system where no employee act as their own approver as supervisor on an expense report. We already had that control in as cost center approver. So it'd be impossible for any employee to approve their own expense report as a cost center approver. We've now added that other control that they also can't approve their own expense report as a uh, supervisor. That sounds like a pretty quick fix. Um, and thank you. Is it fair to guess that this probably got set up when Workday converted a few years ago? Um, it, it happened when we set up expense report. So the expense report process was set up about 18 months after we went live with Workday. Workday went in 2017, expense reports went live later, later in 2018. So yes, auditor, to answer your question, it, uh, when we did that initial setup, because again, it was created by that anomaly where, and it's the only place we found it where somebody actually in Workday reports to themselves. So that's why we didn't have that control in there, but um, thanks to you all identifying it, we realized the need for that control and it, it's been put in place. And it's there now, great, yep. thank you. Yes, sir. Questions from the committee? Shall we continue? Yes. I'll, pa I'll pass the presentation to William to conclude with our next sub-finding. Thank you, Sam. Our final sub-finding of this report can be found starting on page 26 of the report and centers around the lack of a formal review process of the expense report approval process to address deficiencies and mitigate risks. Next slide, please. During our analysis, we found that the controller's office does not periodically review the approval process to determine if it is working as desired. Primarily, the office relies on informal methods to uncover recurring issue, issues, but they do not keep track of how often expense reports are rejected or returned. 
This lack of train tracking of performance prohibits the controller's office from targeting its corrective actions to address issues in the process and addressing any training requirements. A lack of a review of the approval process also does not allow the controller's office to verify if there are any instances where an employee or official is providing their own approval, thus not meeting the requirement for the separation of duties. Next slide, please. The U.S. Government Accountability Office states that management should evaluate and document the results of ongoing monitoring and separate evaluations to identify internal control issues. From that evaluation, management can determine how effective its internal controls are. The Controller's Office was established to ensure the City and County of Denver's financial integrity. Because the Controller's Office maintains the City's fiscal accountability rules and their associated procedures and is the owner of that process, the office should establish and monitor performance indicators to evaluate the effectiveness of those rules. Without monitoring of the process, the city can be at risk for expense reports being submitted without the proper documentation to be compliant with fiscal rules, such as purchases that are not itemized or contain sufficient details to understand what the benefit to the city was. Reimbursing employees for potentially improper expenses or reimbursing items purchased outside of the normal procurement method such as technology assets that are not registered with the city's technology services division, and misclassifying expenses in financial accounts. Therefore, we make the following two recommendations as seen on page 28 of the report. I'll read both recommendations and then open the floor for comment. Recommendation 1.6 states to develop performance metrics. Department of Finance should develop key performance metrics to measure how effective the expense report approval process is and ensuring reports are complete and accurate and in accordance with fiscal rules. The department has agreed to our recommendation with an implementation date of May 31st, 2022. We also made recommendation 1.7 to monitor compliance. The Department of Finance should develop and implement a method to periodically assess and monitor the city agency's compliance with the expense report approval process, including any applicable fiscal rules and related procedures and it should develop and implement a method to systematically respond to deficient approvals or approvers' questions related to the approval process. The department has agreed to our recommendation with an implementation date of May 31st, 2022. This concludes our report on the expense report approval process. I would like to give the Department of Finance and the Audit Committee an opportunity to comment. Thank you, William. Um, Bill, any additional comments on those last two recommendations? Uh, yeah, I would just say, I, I think those two are closely related. Um, when it comes to performance metrics, it becomes a bit challenging for us. I think in, in theory, we would love to say, yeah, we can get some performance metrics so we can measure non-compliance with these expense reports coming in, identify agencies that might be struggling or certain areas of the process. We could focus our training on there. Where that becomes challenging is there, there's not really a way to get data out of the system on those kind of things. It's something we're continually working on to try to develop some more monitoring tools within the system, because what we don't want to have to do is some sort of, you know, have people at their desk doing manual check marks every time they have to send something back. So um, this one's got a little bit later date just because we're trying to figure out a, a way to comply with this in an automated fashion. Okay. Any questions, comments from the committee? All right, well, thank you very much, Bill. I appreciate your cooperation, your responsiveness to the audit and um, look forward to continuing to work with you. Thank you. Uh, the next item on our agenda is a briefing on our transparency audit. 
public notice and engagement. Um, Edie, can you tell me if we have everybody in the room that should be in the room? Hi, Tim. Edie uh, is not here right now, but I believe we have everyone we should. Okay. Thank you, Taylor. Uh, Katja, why don't I turn it over to you? Do you have any opening remarks? Yes, I do. So good morning again. Katja Freeman, Audit Director of the Engagement. And my intro, uh, really brief, is about uh, this audit is about allowing the public access to information before, during, and after the government decision process, which is very important to strengthen the public's trust in government institutions. This audit focused on three agencies in the city to understand whether they were in compliance with public notice requirements and use best practices in their engagement with the community. And while community planning and engagement met the public notice requirements for the um, group living amendment, both the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure and the Human Rights and um, Community, oh, sorry, and Human Rights could do more to meet uh, the public notice requirement. All agencies could also improve how they engage the public. And the team will now provide more details about that. And Emily will introduce the team. Good morning. Thank you, Katya. I'm Emily Owens Gerber, the manager for the Transparency Public Notice and Engagement Audit we're presenting this morning. Other members of the team are Carol Dashlett, lead auditor, Heather Berger, senior auditor, Maria Durant, senior auditor, and Catherine Friday, senior auditor. Okay, uh, thank you, Emily. I know we've got a few people from three different departments, agencies. Um, why don't we start with human rights and community partnerships? Uh, Derek, are you here? Would you like to introduce yourself? Any staff with you? I am here, Mr. Auditor. Derek Okubo, Executive Director, Human Rights and Community Partnerships. Uh, community Planning and Development. Good morning, my name is Evelyn Baker. I'm the Deputy Director of Community Planning and Development. I'm joined this morning uh, from CPD with, uh, uh, by uh, Laura uh, Swartz, our Communications Director, and Sarah Showalter, uh, our Director of Planning Services. And Department of Transportation and Infrastructure. Yeah, uh, my name is Peter Spanberger. I'm the uh, Interim CFO for, for DOT. Anyone with you, Peter, or are you just? I, I was just looking, yeah. Um, I think I think as of right now, I'm the only one on the call from Don. Okay. All right, why don't we begin the briefing? Emily? Okay, thank you. Uh, if I could just take a quick moment on behalf of the team to thank um, everybody, leadership and personnel from the four agencies we worked with during this audit. We know we took up your time, Auditors come around and it makes your workloads even bigger. So we recognize that. We just want to thank you for your responsiveness and cooperation. Heather, if you could get the slides up for us, please. Okay. You should be seeing it. If not, let me know. We are. If you forward two slides, please. Perfect. Excellent. Thank you. So as we describe on page one of the audit report, a transparent government seeks to provide individuals with the information they need to understand how important decisions are made and ensure community members affected by government decisions can both influence 
and actively participate in making those decisions. Next slide, please. Issuing public notices and engaging the community are two common ways governments can achieve public participation. As shown here and described starting on page two of the report, public notice is often legally required through city charter, ordinance, or zoning codes. And these requirements may include timing, format, content, and recipient elements. And it's intended to inform the public about legally significant events. On the other hand, public engagement and outreach activities are not typically legally required and are intended to inform and involve the public in government decisions. Engagement and outreach can include many types of activities, such as listening sessions, focus groups, town hall meetings, and more. Next slide, please. Figure one shown here and on page four of the report demonstrates that a government's efforts to engage its community members fall along a spectrum with increasing levels of public participation. Informing the public, which is captured on the left side of the graphic, represents a very basic level of public participation, while collaborating and empowering involve the public's ability to advise or influence government decisions. Next slide, please. In the city and county of Denver, individual city agencies are responsible for carrying out public notice and public engagement. Next slide, please. On page five of the report, we describe two state laws that can apply to public notice and public engagement. The Colorado Open Records Act describes which documents must be publicly available, such as records of public meetings, like agendas and meeting minutes. The state open meetings law requires governments to provide at least 24 hours notice for any meeting at which a policy, rule, regulation, or formal action will be discussed or adopted. It also describes the notice posting requirements. However, Denver's open meeting laws require a higher threshold for providing notice, a minimum of 48 hours notice, instead of the 24 hours notice described in state law. Additionally, this year, Denver City Council members approved a policy for Denver's public bodies to hold remote or virtual meetings. They also updated the list of public bodies subject to open meetings requirements and added provisions allowing for digital meeting notices. And lastly, as of August of this year, City Council was still considering a proposal to establish a new centralized public engagement office within the city. Next slide, please. As discussed on page 71 of the audit report, our two audit objectives were to evaluate the city's transparency practices by determining whether selected case studies have adequate processes in place to ensure public notices comply with requirements, and to sufficiently inform and engage the community about issues affecting residents. Next slide, please. For our audit scope, also described on page 71, we selected three case studies. Our first case study was Community Planning and Development's Group Living Text Amendment Project that included department activities between 2018 and spring 2021. Our second case study was two bike lane installation projects completed by the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure in 2020. And our third case study was the Agency for Human Rights and Community Partnerships, 10 commissions that represent specific populations in Denver. We list these 10 commissions on page eight of the report. And we selected these case studies because they involve public notice and extensive engagement and outreach. And this concludes the background portion of our presentation. So we welcome any comments or questions from city officials or audit committee members. Comments from the city?
comments from the audit committee? Why don't we continue? Yeah. Okay, okay, next slide, please. Our audit report includes one overall finding that contains three sub-findings and four appendices. Our finding that begins on page nine states that gaps in structure, guidance, and oversight limit the public's ability to, to access information and participate in decision-making on city projects. The results of our testing are laid out in three separate sub-findings. Next slide, please. Our first sub-finding discusses the results of our public notice compliance testing, while sub-finding two highlights the limitations of public notice as a method to keep residents informed and ways the city could provide more access to information online for residents. Finally, the last sub-finding describes the results of our review of engagement and outreach practices, those above and beyond activities agencies employed and form and engage the public used by the three agencies we included in the scope. At this time, Heather will walk us through the first sub-finding. Next slide, please. Thank you, Emily. On page 10 of the report, we begin our discussion of sub-finding one, which states selected agencies did not consistently comply with public meeting, public notice requirements. We begin by discussing public notice requirements as it is the most basic level of informing residents of important government activities. We found the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure and the Agency for Human Rights and Community Partnerships did not comply with applicable public notice requirements, whereas community development, community planning and development did fully comply. For community planning and development, there were two requirements associated with public meetings that had to be followed. First, providing written notice of planning board public hearings, and second, providing written notice of city council public hearings. Both include providing notice to city council members and registered neighborhood organizations. Through our testing, we found that community planning and development fully met both of these requirements. On page 12 of the report, we begin our discussion of how the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure could not show full compliance with their own public notice requirements on two bike lane installation projects, one along East Florida Avenue and the other along East Jewel Avenue. Both projects belong to the annual Coordinated Paving Subprogram, which is subject to public notice requirements that state paving contractors must provide notice to affected businesses and residents 48 hours before construction. We found the timing of notice complied with the requirement, but due to gaps in the contractor's documentation, we could not verify all affected businesses and residents received notice. Specifically, as many as four addresses along East Florida may not have received notice, and as many as 67 along East Jewel potentially did not receive notice. The gaps in the contractor's documentation include missing data and differences in identified corridors, which we discuss further on the next slide. Figure three on page 14 of the report illustrates the differences in identified corridors. As shown along East Florida in the top left-hand corner of the figure, the street maintenance and the paving contractors corridors align, whereas along East Jewel, they do not. This discrepancy results in only 17% of the total corridor receiving notice. Furthermore, 67% of the notices the paving contractor provided were outside of the street maintenance team's defined project area and beyond what was required. The non-compliance occurred because the paving contractor's activities were not monitored, 
which is inconsistent with the U.S. Government Accountability Office standards that states managers should establish monitoring activities to assess the quality of performance to identify and resolve issues, including the activities assigned to service providers, like contractors. To address this, we provide recommendation 1.1 on page 15 of the report that states, the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure's Executive Director should work with the Director of Street Maintenance Operations Division to develop, document, and implement a process for street maintenance staff to monitor and track contracted work to ensure all affected businesses and residents receive public notice for paving activities as required. Transportation and Infrastructure agrees to implement this recommendation by May 1st, 2022. I'll pause here to allow questions and thoughts from the department and the audit committee. Uh, Peter, any additional comments for the, from the department? Auditor O'Brien, this is Nick Williams, uh, deputy manager. Apology for having to join late here. Uh, no additional comments. Um, I like, as we said in there, we agreed with this, with this finding and uh, working on a path to make sure it doesn't happen again. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Heather, do you want to continue? Heather, do you want to continue? Yeah. Okay. So, okay. On. on page 16 of the report, we begin our discussion of the Agency for Human Rights and Community Partnerships compliance with public notice. We found that their commissions did not consistently comply with open meetings requirements this year in 2021. The commissions are subject to the city's open meeting requirements, which require notice to be posted 48 hours in advance and provide details such as time and place. Commissions are also required according to state and local laws to maintain meeting records and make them accessible to the public. We found two of the 10 commissions fully complied with the city's meeting notice requirements, five partially complied, and three did not comply. In terms of making meeting records available to the public, which can include posting me meeting minutes or agendas, we found that none of the 10 commissions fully complied. The commissions are volunteer-based, and the lack of structure, unclear process descriptions, and gaps in training for specific job duties contributed to noncompliance. Additionally, the commission's experience reduced access to resources caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. Because volunteers run these commissions, we offer four recommendations focused on how human rights and community partnerships can better support the commission's required operations. The first three recommendations are dependent on one another, so I'll read them consecutively before pausing to allow for questions. First, recommendation 1.2 on page 23 of the report <laughs> states, the Agency for Human Rights and Community Partnerships should review and revise the process by which meeting notices for its commissions are posted to ensure it leverages technology and available staff to help mitigate volunteer and pandemic-related budget and staffing limitations. Human Rights and Community Partnerships agrees to implement this recommendation by April 1st, 2022. Next, recommendation 1.3 states, that after implementing recommendation 1.2, the Agency for Human Rights and Community Partnerships and its commissions should establish, document, and communicate clear expectations for all staff and volunteers responsible for posting meeting notices, including commissioners, staff liaisons, or other agency support staff who prepare meeting agendas and publicly post the notices. 
Human Rights and Community Partnerships agrees to implement this recommendation by April 1st, 2022. And also see page 69 of the report for the auditor's addendum associated with this recommendation for additional context and clarity. Next, recommendation 1.4 states that after implementing recommendation 1.3, the Agency for Human Rights and Community Partnerships should include its internally established expectations and its employee performance evaluations for staff liaisons and agency support staff, as well as in its training program for commissioners, liaisons, and other staff. Again, Human Rights and Community Partnerships agrees to implement this recommendation by April 1st, 2022. I will pause here to allow questions and thoughts from the agency and the audit committee. Uh, Derek, any additional comments? Yes, thank you. And um, we do agree with all of these recommendations. I myself have to take ownership for uh, some of this because coming out of COVID, I asked our uh, liaisons who are mostly um, uh, office directors and seniors staff to focus on uh, the COVID aftermath as far as focusing on, on the residents first as a priority and, and their activities. And as a result, um, uh, the commission uh, follow-up and due to uh, uh, some staffing issues uh, was not uh, kept up to speed like it should have. So, you know, we do agree that despite all that was going on that we should have uh, kept this uh, up, up to date. And that is something with the new staffing uh, that will be hired as a result of the uh, budget expansions. We hope to get this all taken care of. Um, are you having success in finding people? Um, right now, well, we're uh, hopefully this week we will be posting um, some positions and we'll see what the response is. But uh, I think for, uh, like with all agencies, recruitment has been a challenge. Right. Well, thank you. Um, Mr. Questions from the committee. Yes, Florine. Yeah, I would like to, I, I wanted to clarify um, two, two points. Um, I believe I heard you say that, that for notice of public hearings, um, what the the notice um, requirement is notice to city council people and then uh, notice to registered community organizations. This was in the area of uh, you know community uh, planning. Is that is that correct? There's no note. There's no requirement for notice to the general public or general citizens. For the particular text amendment process, that is correct. Yes. And so then um, is there a requirement for the uh, for public hearings or at what point in, in a um, in the process of change or is that agency related as well? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not sure I understand the question. Would you mind? Well, that was the the. Uh, the requirement was, as, as I understand it, was specifically to public hearings, not generally what the business of the is going on at the at the particular agency. So, is there a requirement at some point in time that there be a public hearing? 
Um, I think I'll defer to our representatives from CPD to speak to that, as that's a little bit outside of what we looked at specifically. For yeah, Emmeline, can you help here? Sure, and actually what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna to point to Sarah Showalter, who's our Director of Planning Services. Broadly, I can say yes, that when there is a text amendment that is going through the approval process, there are public hearing requirements. Those text amendments have to go through the public hearing process, and there are very specific public notification requirements associated with that hearing, but I don't know, Sarah, if you wanna provide any additional context. Yeah, I mean, pretty much everyone said we have very clear requirements for um, who gets notice and at what time, whenever we're doing a public hearing for a text amendment. One, one follow-up question for the auditors. If um, I know, and maybe you're gonna discuss this uh, in your, um, with the proposals point 1.6, 1.7, but, and, and just tell me if you are, if that's okay. But um, I know you surveyed other cities and their requirements for, um, I was just curious to see whether the lack of, of having to notify the public in general, but just specific community groups was something you found in other communities of this size. Um, did, did that come up? And when we surveyed other communities, as you mentioned, that's coming up that we'll discuss a little bit in the audit report, we were focused on their websites um, and not necessarily requirements for noticing. And I think this kind of gets to bridging the space where we will speak a little bit more about the community engagement process, which does not have requirements for it. So those are those additional activities um, that go above and beyond, but we did not survey other communities to compare um, the requirements or the basis of community engagement activities. Okay, thank you. Any other questions from the committee? Uh, I have a question, um, and Evelyn, I don't know if you're the right one to ask this of, but you know, the registered neighborhood organizations, I think are great. I think that's a wonderful asset in Denver. The, my comment is that, you know, some of those neighborhood organizations are much more active than others. You know, some will meet once a year, um, I was with one this week that had 37 members attending and they meet fairly regularly. Some meet monthly. Is the RNO the best way to provide notice? I feel like that's a, that's a, a really big question, um, sort of uh, beyond the scope of this, this, you know, the focus of this, this specific audit this, this afternoon or this morning. Um, but it's a great question to ask. I think it's something that we, um, CPD and other um, city partners have, have continually taken a look at that question. I don't, I, I don't know that I have the definitive answer for you now. I, know, I can say that uh, my experience with other jurisdictions is that there is some reliance on, um, on that as, a, as an outreach tool. It mm -hmm. certainly can't be the only outreach tool. Um, we work, we partner as well with our city council uh, offices as well, um, and, and use a lot of our, our city website and other notification to, um, to provide outreach and, and inform, inform the public when conversations are happening, important public conversations are happening. Um, I, can't, I can't give you a definitive yes or no on that. I can just say that this is a, um, 
something that is uh, common in, in jurisdictions and local government is to partner with those registered neighborhood organizations. There's likely always opportunities to fine tune that process, um, but, it's, but it's not something that's unique to Denver. Okay, well, thank you, I appreciate that. Other questions from the committee? Carol, are you gonna continue? I have one more recommendation uh, to discuss or to present for subfinding one, and then I'll pass it off to Carol. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. So this is um, continuing on to page 24 of the report. Um, and again, this is our final recommendation of subfinding one. Um, and recommendation 1.5 states that the Agency for Human Rights and Community Partnerships should develop and implement procedures for management to review key activities required of commissioners, staff liaisons, and other agency support staff, including, but not limited to, those associated with complying with public meeting requirements and developing relevant governing documents. Human Rights and Community Partnerships agrees to implement this recommendation by April 1st, 2022. Uh, and I'll, again, pause to allow any questions or thoughts from the agency and the audit committee. Uh, Derek, any comments? Yeah, we are so fortunate, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, uh, finance and the mayor approved some staffing additions, which will now be in place. And, and he or she um, uh, will, one of the... Um, uh, responsibilities will be overall management of the, of the commissions to ensure that systems are in place and that uh, um, compliance is ensured. Thank you. Questions from the committee? Why don't we continue? Okay. And so that concludes our discussion of subfinding one. And now I will hand it over to Carol to discuss subfinding two. Thank you, Heather. Our second subfinding begins on page 24 of the report with the title, Providing More Access to Information Online Could Improve Community Awareness of Public Notice and Engagement Opportunities. We observed for all three case studies that public notices are limited in which community members receive notice, limited in the ways they are distributed, and limited as a means of offering advanced notice for individuals to engage with the city. We also observed that the city's website could be better used as a hub of notice and engagement information, which would offer greater access to information to community members and help to fill the gap left by the limitations of the public notice processes we reviewed in our case studies. Next slide, please. The first condition we observed and discussed on pages 24 and 25 of the report is that public notice requirements do not allow timely access to information for all community members. Public notice requirements don't offer multiple ways for community members to access information and as such, don't provide tools that empower them to find information about issues and changes that affect their lives. We found in each of the three case studies the following limitations of public notice distribution methods. For the Group Living Text Amendment project, it was only subject to notice requirements to distribute to city council members and registered neighborhood organizations. For bike lane installation projects, when completed as part of the paving sub-program, only require notice to be delivered to properties along the project corridor. 
and human rights and community partnerships, 10 commissions, only regularly post meeting notices digitally on the commission's web pages. Next slide, please. These singular distribution methods lead to only select groups in the Denver community being reached by public notice. For example, the Group Living Text Amendment Project's public notice requirements rely on registered neighborhood organizations to share notice with their members. And these organizations are reportedly limited in their ability to reach residents, as we describe on page 25 of the report. Next slide, please. For those select resident groups who do receive notice, it may arrive too late to offer meaningful access to project information or opportunities to provide input. For example, the Group Living Text Amendment Project began engagement work in 2018, but activities which required public notice did not begin until 2020. Bike lane installations completed through the paving subprogram issue notice only 48 hours before paving is initiated. Absent public notice requirements that offer community members sufficient chances to be informed and participate in decision-making, the public must rely on other avenues to have opportunities for providing meaningful input. Next slide, please. The next condition we observed and discussed on pages 25 and 26 of the report is the city could improve the accessibility of information for residents on its website. Community members who aren't among the groups required to receive notice or who would prefer to be notified sooner about upcoming city actions would likely find it helpful to have more ways to access information directly from the city, and the city website could be better leveraged to provide this access. On page 26 of the report, we discussed the limitations we observed in city web-based information access, which included public notices not made available on either the city's website or on agency web pages, multiple events calendars with differing information, the city's website search functions not offering easy access to content related to noticed activities or opportunities for public participation, and the city calendar of events not including all open public meetings or hearings from all city agencies and few events at the project or neighborhood level. Next slide, please. We found these web-based limitations did not align with leading practices in the field of government transparency focused on information access. As we discuss in the report on page 27, according to those leading practices, information needs to be easily accessed, timely, structured, and usable. On page 28 of the report, we discuss state law, which says at a minimum, Notice should be provided on a local government's website, and to the extent possible, digital notices should be searchable by the type of meeting, date, time, contents of the agenda, and other categories of information as applicable. This is consistent with further leading practices we also discuss on page 28 of the report for the design of accessible and user-friendly websites, which detail that such a website should include decision-making information, such as a description of an agency's decision-making process and how community members may participate in that process. Next slide, please. On pages 28 and 29 of the report, we also reviewed the website of other cities, including Boulder, Lakewood, and Boston. In our review of those websites, we found centralized locations for public notices and public engagement opportunities, search filters and menu options specific to public notices, and interactive maps of neighborhood and local area projects. 
Next slide, please. The cause related to our observations on information access stem from the city of Denver lacking a comprehensive and centralized approach to public notice and engagement. As we discuss on page 29 of the report, although Denver's comprehensive plan includes goals for community involvement and collaboration in city decision-making, no leadership roles have been assigned at a citywide level to accomplish these goals. Further, we know of a silo effect when city agencies are left to coordinate their own engagement activities. The city has been working on a redesign of the website and throughout our audit work, we continued to see new features added to the website but not all items that were planned had been rolled out when we completed our audits in July. All of our observations on information access found that the lack of a comprehensive and centralized approach leads to the community not being able to fully access information and opportunities provided by the city, and that the city isn't able to reap the full benefits of public participation. As such, we make a recommendation to the Mayor's Office and Technology Services Agency on the top of page 31 in the report. I will read the recommendation and then pause for comments or questions. Next slide, please. Recommendation 1.6 states, the mayor's office should work with the city's technology services agency to improve the accessibility of public notice and engagement information on the city's website to improve residents' access. At a minimum, this should include determining the feasibility of the following methods among any others the mayor's office and technology services choose to consider and developing and documenting an implementation plan. These methods include adding searchable interactive neighborhood maps with agency project information, developing a centralized repository for all public meeting notices and engagement opportunities for city agencies under the purview of the mayor's office, and enhancing connections between the city's events calendars and agencies' events calendars for project engagement opportunities, meetings, and staff contacts. The Mayor's Office has agreed to implement the recommendation by April 30th, 2022. I will now pause for comments from the Mayor's Office, Technology Services Agency, or the Audit Committee. Um, Sky Stewart, I see you're on the line. Do you care to make any comment on behalf of the Mayor's Office? Thanks, good morning, Auditor. Uh, no, just that we agree with this recommendation. I would certainly defer to Jenny Schiavone, who is our chief marketing officer and leads our work with the website. We'll be working closely with her team on this, and uh, she could probably speak a little more eloquently than I could to the feasibility. So I'll turn it to her if she wants to add any context there. Jenny? Sure. Thanks, Sky, and good morning. Um, yes, so the I, I do want to point out that um, one, we do agree with this, and it's something that we've actually been working toward um, uh, as, as the findings showed. So thank you for uh, to the audit team for documenting what we have been working on and what we have accomplished so far. Um, what the feasibility piece, I do want to just point out, there may be some additional functionality that we'll have to add to our website or some other types of technology that we'll have to procure. So the feasibility piece of this is really what we're committing to have done uh, by that April 30th date. There may be additional budget or other resources associated with the implementation. So we just really wanna be clear that first, we're making sure we have the right resources, people, technologies um, to complete this work. And uh, at that point in time, we'll be able to have a better timeline for 
um, the implementation and, and um, the other elements that, that may need to be procured to, to see this come to life. Great, thank you. Um, Carol, before you continue, uh, your audio kind of fades in and out. I don't know if it's at your end or at my end, but if you could make sure you're close enough to your mic when you continue, that might uh, help. Sure, thank you, editor. I apologize for that. Um, this does conclude my discussion of subbinding too, so hopefully this won't impact um, what's coming next. So I'll transfer the floor to Catherine and she's going to discuss subbinding three from our report. All right, thank you. Catherine? Thank you, Carol. Our third subfinding begins on page 31 of the report with the title, the city and some individual agencies lack standard guidance and defined expectations for engaging the public. Although each of the case studies varied a little, we identified a common theme of lack of guidance, standards, and expectations for each. We also found the city could better support agencies by providing a citywide framework for engagement, similar to guidance we identified in other cities. By addressing these gaps, the city and its agencies could better inform and engage with community members. Slide, please. Our first example on report page 32 deals with community planning and development. No formal written policies and procedures guide public engagement activities for the text amendment projects. For the group living text amendment, we found community planning and development's engagement and outreach activities aligned with leading practices from the Colorado Department of Local Affairs in a number of areas and over the entire three-year lifespan of the project. These areas of alignment are detailed in the report on pages 33 through 34, and figure four on page 33, as well as appendix D of the report, outline all of the engagement activities for the project. Next slide, please. On pages 34 through 39 of the report, however, we discuss a few areas for improvement using standards from the U.S. Government Accountability Office, the department's own guidance for other projects like neighborhood and small area plans, and other leading engagement sources. These areas include developing a process to respond to public comments, goals for engagements, and associated performance metrics, a self-evaluation method, and a public engagement plan. Next slide, please. In addition to community planning and development's lack of policies and procedures, we also found a lack of guidance at the city level. Starting in the middle of report page 39, we discuss our review of other cities and their guidance. For example, we identified frameworks for engagement in place in Boulder and Fort Collins. The frameworks provide common definitions and goals for engagement, outline steps that should be involved, and offer resources and support with the goal of providing more meaningful and consistent engagement experiences across all local government agencies. They also offer guidance on how to evaluate engagements, and Boulders also includes establishing a community of practice to bring together engagement professionals across agencies for shared learning and networking. By implementing this kind of guidance, the city and its agencies could improve the consistency and effectiveness of public engagement. Next slide, please. Pages 40 through 42 of the report include recommendations to the city and community planning and development. Recommendation 1.7 is addressed to the city. The mayor's office and Denver Marketing Services, a division of technology services, should develop centralized guidance, such as the citywide framework for engagement and offer formal networking opportunities, such as communities of practice for the city staff responsible for public engagement. 
Decentralized efforts should include standardized training, a statement of the city's values and expectations, and a description of guidance resources available for all public engagement staff. The establishment of communities of practice could include designating an individual or group that would serve as engagement experts and connect city staff with guidance and resources. The Mayor's Office and Denver Marketing Services have agreed to implement this recommendation by April 30th, 2022. And I'll pause here for questions from the committee or any comments related to this recommendation from the Mayor's Office. Um, Sky, any comments here? Jenny? Yeah, thanks so much, Auditor. Uh, obviously, you saw that we agree with this. Uh, certainly want to state clearly that we really value the importance of community engagement and so are happy to work through this recommendation. Uh, Jenny and Teresa Marchetta, who's also on the line from uh, my team, lead a, a citywide marketing and communications group and they could offer you a little bit more comment on that, but we will utilize that forum to help develop some basic standards. I think we still strongly believe that the subject matter expertise at the agency level is really important to help guide and define the specifics of community engagement, but we'll work as a team to set some um, baseline expectations across the city and would leave it to Jenny and Teresa if they wanna chime in on um, that citywide marketing and communication team effort that they lead. Thank you. Uh, Jenny, Teresa? Mr. Auditor, um, nice to see you. Teresa Marchetta for, from the Mayor's Office. I'm the Director of Strategic Communications and Media Policy and have worked closely with Jenny um, and her marketing team uh, to align on many things um, citywide to really kind of bridge the gap for agencies and departments. And I think um, this is an excellent recommendation and something that um, we will be able to, I think, pretty easily and quickly implement across city agencies because we've, all, we've already set a standard for biweekly check-ins that are standard for across the city. So Jenny and I lead those meetings um, and I think this will be a great complement to the work that we're already doing across agencies. Um, Jenny? Sure, thank you. Yes, the only other thing I will add is that we do have um, a brand center that we've stood up over the last few years for our internal marketing communication teams and, you know, agencies who um, maybe only have one PIO or the work is not as broad in, in those agencies as it might be in others. So this is a great addition to add to our brand center, which includes other standards around logo usage, uh, website styles, things like that. So this is, um, I think, one more really good tool in the toolkit for our agency marketing communication folks. And then for us to, again, really um, impress upon staff in other areas of agencies that those are the professionals to go to and really um, use as um, your advisors when you're doing public engagement um, and that sort of thing. So I, I echo what Teresa said, we're excited to dig in and formalize this work. Um, one thing I will just call out is that through, through some of these findings on public engagement, um, I know it's been mentioned a couple of times, we don't have a citywide sort of centralized um, marketing communications function. So we really do have to rely on each agency to execute the best practices and guidelines as well, um, because the positions that Teresa and I hold are tied to an administration. Obviously, people come and go and that changes. So I just wanted to point that out, but I think having the standards and having repository for them really gets us a long way there to provide the guidance for agencies. Thank you. 
Um, any make, questions or comments from the committee? Yeah, I would just like to make a comment about the, uh, regarding this one and the prior um, recommendation about the website. Um, I think this would these both would go a long way to make the public, the community members feel um, more included and uh, alleviate some of the disenfranchisement that occurred around the um, zoning commission uh, or the zoning uh, changes. Because I think oftentimes when we're in government, we think that we've, we communicate a lot. Uh, we communicate with, you know, interest holders and, and whatever. But I think some, oftentimes a large percentage of the general public don't have any idea what's going on. But, but if it's, you know, available via website, somebody's curious can look at that, then they don't have to rely on their city council person or a community group that they may not even be aware of um, because a lot of our communities aren't, aren't covered by the community groups or at least not active ones as, as auditor pointed out. So I, I uh, appreciate the, the mayor's response, uh, mayor's office response to this and, and look forward to seeing um, the communication um, improvements. Thank, thank you for saying that. I, I, you also just reminded me of a, the, the question that um, auditor you asked around RNOs and whether that's the best um, resource in public engagement and communications. And I, my answer to that would be it's one, again, one tool in our toolkit that we have to have a very layered um, approach to how we do this work. And that's something that Teresa and I have really been working hard on over the last few years to really say, you know, it, 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 you need to do that, but also these things and that the website, social media, some of our other tools are really important there. And what we've also been doing is um, on my team, really trying to set a framework for looking at, um, at all of this work from the resident perspective. We shouldn't expect a resident to come to Denver Gov and have to know they need to go to a DOTI website to find a DOTI meeting or a DOTI public engagement. Um, effort or CPD, that the resident doesn't need to know what department we all work in. Um, they shouldn't have to have, have to take a civics 101 course to understand what we're trying to tell them and how, what we're doing to try to make their lives better. So we really are um, uh, immersed in, in something that we're calling resident experience as a concept to guide this work, to really present um, our, our work and our communication tools um, with that resident lens versus the city lens that we all know the acronyms for and we all know who does what, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't make the resident have to try to understand that. We should just give them easy to digest, informative tools, information, and services to make their lives better. So that's really at the core of what we're doing and our agreement and these recommendations lines up with that. And I would, I would just add to, to that, Jenny, that, you know, while we we have become expert at leveraging the platforms at our disposal to reach as many people as possible, um, including our social media and earned media platforms. Um, we have not yet kind of standardized that across city agencies and departments, um, although we consult on that often. So I think, you know, as Jenny mentioned, being able to have those guidelines embedded um, in the brand kit that she has put together will be, I think, a huge help. Great, thank you very much. Any other questions from the committee before we continue? I think you've got a challenge ahead of you and I appreciate your 
your enthusiasm for that. Um, Catherine, shall we continue? Yes, sir. The next four recommendations are addressed to the Community Planning and Development Department because these recommendations follow the areas for improvement that we identified in leading practices. I'll read through 1.8 and 1.9 together before providing an opportunity to comment. Recommendation 1.8. states that the Department of Community Planning and Development's Planning Services Division should create formal policies and procedures for department-led text amendment projects to guide staff in conducting public engagement and outreach. This guidance should identify the circumstances under which a formal engagement plan should be developed and specify that these plans must document at a minimum goals for the engagement effort, the process to be used in communicating with the public about input the department receives, and the process for self-evaluating the engagement effort. Next slide, please. Recommendation 1.9 states that the department's planning services division should establish a process for responding to the public directly about their input provided to the department, such as auto reply emails to let individuals know their input was received, how it will be considered in the process and include contact information for department staff leading these projects. The department's agreed with both of these recommendations and plans to implement them by March 31st, 2022. And I'll pause here in case there are any questions from the committee or to allow representatives from community planning and development to comment. Evelyn. Thank you. Um, yep, uh, so you saw in our formal response that CPD, in fact, uh, spoiler alert, agreed with all of the recommendations that were directed to CPD. Um, we too have, uh, to be clear, have a have a shared interest in effective outreach and engagement for stakeholders. We're not trying, uh, the work that we do is, in, is better when it's informed by these robust public processes. So building upon these bare minimum base requirements as you've identified in the, in the audit, we have um, in many instances as also identified in the audit gone above and beyond. Now, again, the recommendation that I hear here specifically is to formalize those and to document those practices that we've employed above and beyond to make those sort of standard as we uh, to inform all of our text amendment processes. Uh, luckily, we're able to build upon some um, good practices that we've established for our neighborhood planning efforts. Um, and so we're working to fold some of that into our uh, text amendment process uh, as well. Sarah, I don't know if you wanted to add anything in addition to that. I would just reiterate what the point that you made that our goal is to reach as many people as possible by as many methods as possible. So although um, there may not be formal requirements in the code for public notice um, until certain things are triggered like a public hearing, um, we it's our standard practice to start doing engagement early on through multiple tools. And a lot of that, like um, was already mentioned by Catherine is on pages 33 and 34 of the report to see what we did for group living. Um, but it includes um, multiple, multiple touch points. Um, again, kind of on this theme, recognizing that although RNO engagement is great and we did um, um, easily 25 or more specific RNO presentations, but then over 50 total um, to other organizations as well throughout the process, going to their meetings and trying to get them engaged. So we have, um, I think there's good documentation there of um, how we try to go above and beyond and kind of what our standard practices are. But as Evelyn said, we look forward to kind of formalizing that a little bit more and agree that that's a good recommendation. Thank you. 
questions or comments from the committee? Uh, Catherine, should we move on? The Department of Community Planning and Development's Planning Services Division should develop an evaluation tool to assess the public's feedback on the division's engagement activities, such as the format of public meetings, the time allotted for questions and answers, and the ways the department collects public input. The division should implement this tool by providing it to community members who participate in an engagement activity to assess whether these activities are meeting the public's needs and expectations. Next slide, please. Recommendation 1.11 states the department's planning services division should establish a process to measure the success of department-led text amendment engagement efforts through a lessons learned review, and it should document the results of this self-evaluation. The department has agreed with both of these recommendations as well, with the same implementation date for March 31st, 2022. And again, we'll pause here for questions or comments before moving on with examples from our other case studies. Evelyn, anything additional to add here? Just the quick comment that we also appreciate the value in reflecting, not just starting something new or you know, trying something new, but then reflecting on how that's working. If it's if it's meeting our goals, if we if we have the opportunity to fine tune those mechanisms or those new uh, tools that we're employing, so um, fully on board with both of these recommendations as well, uh, and appreciate the auditor's office uh, time in, in in developing these for CPD. Thank you. Uh, questions from the committee, Catherine. Beginning on page 42 of the report, we discuss our second example dealing with the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure. Transportation and Infrastructure lacks clarity on how to use the department's resources for public engagement. For the two projects we reviewed, we found that project delivery staff were primarily responsible for leading public engagement and that the resources and support for this varied on both projects. Next slide, please. First, there's a lack of clarity on the Office of Business and I'm sorry, community and business engagement's role and responsibilities. The office is supposed to support project teams, but it isn't clearly defined when and in what capacity. For example, on the East Jewel project, the office was only involved after community members raised concerns, and then it was very involved compared to the more minimal support it provided on the East Florida project. Second, only one of the projects received support through the department's contract with a public information consultant. And third, community designers also provided varying levels of support. These are department personnel tasked with maintaining community relationships. For East Jewel, they became involved during the project after community pushback, but on the East Florida project, they took a leadership role and strategy from the beginning. We note on pages 43 through 44 of the report, the department lacks clearly established roles for these resources and formal updated policies and procedures that outline how and when they should become involved in project support. We found some outdated engagement procedures that are supposed to be replaced by the Office of Community and Business Engagement's new Community Engagement Guide. However, we found some gaps in that new guidance as well, including timing for communication to stakeholders, how to distribute project materials to residents, and how to handle public input. Slide, please. 
On pages 44 through 45 in the report, we make two recommendations to the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure. Again, I'll read both and then pause for questions and comments. Recommendation 1.12 states the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure should assess the expectations for the Office of Community and Business Engagement, its staff resources, and the department's expectations for the level and timing of support the office gives to bike project teams. The results of this assessment should be documented. Slide, please. Recommendation 1.13, based on the results of the assessment called for in 1.12, the department should develop, document, and implement policies and procedures for planning engagement efforts that include at a minimum, clearly identifiable responsibilities for each collaborative partner and the bikes team to increase the consistency of public engagement and ensure effective collaboration on bike lane installation projects. The developed policies and procedures should also include a formal process for handling public input. The department has agreed with both of these recommendations and plans to implement them by February 1st and March 1st of 2022, respectively. And we'll pause here to allow for questions from the committee or comments from transportation and infrastructure. Uh, comments now. Thank you, Mr. Editor. Uh, not, not much on this. Uh, as we said, we agreed with both of these. Um, you mentioned there that we were actually uh, developing our community engagement guide concurrent with this uh, audit process that has been completed. Uh, we've been doing a, a fair amount of outreach on there, but really to operationalize and, and the, the uh, things that were just discussed, um, policies and procedures, formal policies and procedures are now being developed. Uh, we are also working with um, our city attorney's office to develop some uh, more standardized engagement expectations that can be um, inserted into uh, different project contracts, things like that. But overall, I think we were we were on the right track. This, this confirms that we were on the right track uh, and looking forward to clarifying that role uh, and really getting the department aligned on engagement expectations. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Questions from the committee? Uh, questions from the committee. Uh, Catherine, you want to continue? Uh, Catherine, you want to continue? Uh, I'm getting feedback. I don't know I'm if anybody else is. Our third example comes from Human Rights and Community Partnerships on report page 45. Key operations and guiding documents vary significantly across Human Rights and Community Partnerships commissions. We found a lack of clarity and guidance for the liaison support roles and how commissions set and report goals. Slide, please. First, on pages 45 through 47 of the report, we describe the different levels and types of support liaisons provide for commission meetings, the process to post meeting notice, and in commission's engagement and outreach activities. While we'd expect some variation based on the individual and the role and the needs of each of the commissions they support, we also found that liaisons would like more structure around expectations and processes. There are no policies and procedures for the role, and agency management relies on informal meetings with liaisons and training intended for commissioners to help liaisons understand their support role. Second, on pages 47 through 48, we discuss commission's goal setting practices. City law requires commissions to develop and report goals and objectives annually. Again, we found a range of practices from no goals to a list of goals and to what could be considered more of a strategic plan that linked goals to strategies, timelines, and responsible parties. 
Human rights and community partnerships says they have no expectations for commissions to engage in similar goal setting processes and that goals are verbally reported to them. But the agency doesn't track the goals or review them for potential coordination among commissions. We reference criteria from the US Government Accountability Office regarding staff roles, expectations, and accountability structures, and discuss their guidance on organizational goal setting. This involves establishing specific, measurable objectives, linked activities, assigned responsibilities, and expected timeframes. On page 49 of the report, we also use leading engagement practices for goal setting with an example of commissions use of social media to help illustrate the importance of that planning step to overall performance and accountability. While it's appropriate for each commission's priorities and operations to vary as a reflection of their communities, the agency could make it easier for commissions to comply with legal requirements and make progress towards their goals by providing more consistent support through liaisons and encouraging a goal planning and reporting process that supports performance and accountability. Next slide, please. On page 50 of the report, we make three recommendations to agency management. Again, as these are related and should be completed in the order listed, I'll read through the entire set before pausing for questions or agency comment. We'd also like to note, uh, based on the responses provided by the agency, we've provided clarity and additional context for our recommendations in an auditor's addendum on pages 69 through 70 of the report. Recommendation 1.14 states that the Agency for Human Rights and Community Partnerships should review how it supports its 10 commissions to identify areas where standardizing job expectations, templates, tools, and processes may help the commissions comply with city requirements and operate more effectively. Specifically, the agency should review the support it provides through staff liaisons, and it should review the commission's practices related to establishing goals and objectives, among others, as necessary. Next slide, please. Recommendation 1.15 states that after implementing Recommendation 1.14, the agency should work with relevant stakeholders, like commissioners, staff liaisons, and other agency and city staff, to develop standardized expectations, processes, templates, and tools, including technology resources, to streamline how the commissions and support staff share information and manage commission documentation. Next slide, please. Recommendation 1.16, the agency should develop and implement review procedures to assess key activities required of liaisons and commissions, including but not limited to setting goals and objectives on an annual basis. The agency has agreed with all three of these recommendations and plans to implement 1.14 and 1.15 by April 1st, 2022, and 1.16 by July 1st, 2022. And I'll hand the discussion back over to the committee for questions or to representatives from Human Rights and Community Partnership for comment. Derek, why don't we start with you? Any additional comments? Sure, yeah, we, we do agree with these. We, our commissions have been very frustrated because we just came out, we're coming out of and still emerging from a very unique situation regarding uh, the pandemic, which really truly hindered their way of uh, engaging with the community. And uh, now it uh, seems like for pretty much all of them, we're, they're stuck with one means of engagement um, uh, with uh, among each other, as far as uh, through um, the weariness that has emerged from Zoom meetings and everything. But uh, uh, there is a lot of standardization. 
uh, that we are putting in place or have, have in place already as far as technology is concerned. However, um, uh, the commissions are still uh, asking for the, um, uh, the uniqueness to be allowed as far as how, and the flexibility is how they, as far as how they engage with their community and uh, share information. Um, uh, a number of the um, um, commissions have goals that stay the same from year to year as far as certain engagement. So, you know, what the audit pointed out is we need to do a better job as far as taking the goals, if they have not changed and they stay the same, to make sure that we uh, move them over to the subsequent year rather than just saying they're the same, you know, as before. So yeah, there are some mechanisms that need to be in place. Um, uh, and we also recognize that there needs to be flexibility uh, based on the unique qualities of each commission and the populations they represent. Okay, thank you. Uh, any questions from the committee? Um, Catherine, you got one more? All right. Example begins on report page 51. The city may not consistently communicate how it uses input from human rights and community partnerships commissions. The fact that Denver has these commissions aligns with leading engagement practices. However, to make the most of the leading practice, the city could improve how well it communicates with commissions about how their input influences the city's decision making and policy. Commission leadership reported negative perceptions about how the city both uses their input and communicates how it was used. This was echoed by other support staff and stakeholders. We reference leading engagement practices that highlight the importance of decision making, I'm sorry, decision makers promptly communicating to stakeholders how their input was used. By establishing a formal communications protocol for this feedback, the city could better encourage volunteer engagement and public participation. Slide, please. This leads us to our final recommendation on report page 54. Recommendation 1.17 states that the Agency for Human Rights and Community Partnerships should work with the mayor's office and other city agencies to define expectations for and a process by which the mayor's office and the agencies under its purview regularly report to the 10 commissions regarding how the commissioner's input was considered and used in the city's decision-making and policy. Both the agency and mayor's office agree to implement this recommendation by February 2nd, 2022. And this concludes our presentation. At this time, we'd invite either questions from the committee or comments from human rights and community partnerships or the mayor's office on this final recommendation. Eric, uh, Sky, any further comments? Yeah, we are putting in mechanisms uh, as far as uh, um, we currently um, follow up, you know, Sky and her team have done a pretty good job. Anytime the uh, recommendations from uh, uh, commissions go over to her, we usually do get a response back within 48 hours um, and that we then send back to the commissions. Um, there are other recommendations that come through. I guess the bottom line is, is we could always do better as far as communication and as far as follow-up. And we will explore the different mechanisms in which that can be done. But uh, there's always room for improvement as far as communication is concerned, as my family constantly reminds me. 
Thank you, Derek. Sky? I'll just add, we're here to support Derek however um, he needs it based on the feedback he's getting from commissions. We certainly have heard previously, um, you know, their desire to have uh, FaceTime with the mayor and so continue to work to try to make that happen as often as, as possible. Um, and I think part of the communications um, piece that we'll continue to work with Derek's team, especially as he adds new members, is um, helping the commissions understand what is is possible and is not possible um, in our form of government, you know, with the, the laws that we have, with state statutes. So we get a lot of feedback on state issues um, and respond to that very quickly. Uh, we have had, I will acknowledge some challenges on the city side of things with um, commissioners who don't uh, necessarily understand the city process. And so we'll continue to work to try and set some baseline also education efforts as part of that communication. So um, we don't have people feeling the frustration of not seeing things move in a particular way or in a particular timeline. They have a better understanding of how that process works um, to give them a little bit of context for uh, how we might be responding to the feedback we get from them. Thank you. Um, any questions from the audit committee? Um, I want to thank the Department of Transportation, the Mayor's Office, uh, the Human Rights and Community Partnerships, and Community Planning and Development. Uh, I think this was a good audit. I think your responses were great. And uh, I know communication is something easier said than done. But uh, you know, it's certainly a challenge for all of us. So thanks for everything. And that would conclude this particular item on our agenda. Uh, next item on the agenda is general business. Uh, general business. Does anyone have any general business? Okay, our next meeting is going to be December. Sorry, I don't have the date in front of me. Um, I believe it's the 16th. And the 16th. And I'd kind of like to ask the committee if they would want to meet in person. And, and to entice you, I would be happy to host lunch after the committee. <laughs> well, uh, if I can just say this, um, given uh, the level of hospitalizations and the lack of um, really defined state guidance, um, I think you know our Zoom meetings have been really well done, and. Um, I just think that uh, the public health issue still is going to go on for some time. Uh, so I recommend against it. Although, Mr. Otter, if we, if you do it, uh, I will attend mass. You'll attend what? I will attend mass. Okay. So uh, it's not. How does it, and you you would have had me at bagels and coffee, so. <laughs> <laughs>
an auditor, I'm I'm perfectly comfortable meeting in person. I, I do have to add that I will uh, be out of the country at the next meeting, so I'm not here, but I would be happy to meet in person going forward. Ed or Charles, do you have a feeling? Uh, I would be happy to meet in person, but unfortunately, um, I can only attend half the meeting in December. And so um, if I have to drive down and drive back, I probably can't attend at all. Okay, well, why don't we, why don't we meet virtually so that we can have as much time with everybody as possible. Okay, um, so we will meet virtually on December the 16th. Thank you for... Um, where are you going, Leslie? Well, COVID allowing, we'll be in uh, India, the Maldives, and Sri Lanka. This oh, trip wow. has been postponed, I don't even know anymore, three or four times. <laughs> well, I just got back from um, a cruise that has been postponed ah. twice. And um, so I was just curious because Southern Europe is sketchy off, uh, as far mm. as open and closed. Uh, yeah. I found Barce Barcelona was pretty was pretty sad, but uh, Marseille and Monaco and and uh, Florence and and um, Rome were pretty open. So, mm -hmm. just FYI. <laughs> <laughs> so enjoy. Thank you. Doing our part to stimulate the world economy. Trying to. Okay, our next agenda item is to evaluate our independent auditors. Uh, I think that best be done in executive session. Can I get a motion to go into executive session? I so move. Second. Is there a second? Is there any objection to the motion? Okay, as soon as that recording button stops, I think we can. Recording stopped. community is that it's not that scary <laughs> let's be honest I feel like like oh needles but no no it's not bad at all and I think we have to be very serious of how important it is to be the source be the leader in our families and our communities of our employers of our co-workers you know and we have to change the narrative of thinking well men don't like to get vaccinated well I think this is the time to make the change and show people, show our community, hey, we're here for you, and we're gonna do the vaccine.
As you know, our city is emerging from the worst public health and economic crises in our lifetime. We maintained strong reserves over the past decade, and our sound fiscal management gave us the ability to weather the crises. But as everyone knows, we also had to make cuts last year. New leadership in the White House also provided aid to cities, and combined with our residents' drive to get vaccinated against this virus, Denver has proven we are resilient and a very vibrant city. Colorado has one of the top vaccination rates in the country, and that is in large part boosted by Denver's vaccine.